Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast and the second in our series of EG Interview Lives. Recorded, yes, you've guessed it, live at EG's pavilion out at Mippin this March. In this episode, EG News Editor Pui Guan Man is in conversation with PFV Capital's new Chief Executive, Catherine Webster. In this 30-minute listen, hear how Webster has turned 30 years of ashamedly turning a profit for businesses into something so much more worthwhile. Turning a profit to deliver social value. This is a must-listen for anyone in the business of housing and fund management who wants to find a way to become an unashamedly capitalist, but for good reasons. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. We are sitting down with uh, Catherine Webster, CEO of Social Value and ESG-focused fund manager PFP Capital and also co-chair of Creative Land Trust. Having spent 30 years in real estate in various senior roles at the likes of Hudson Advisors, TIAA, Lehman Brothers, and most recently, Quintain, Catherine is now leading PFP through an era of change for the industry. Catherine, what a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Pri. The 30 years got me a bit frustrated. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> it, was, it was meant to be a compliment. Okay. <laughs> um, so you're about three months into your new role as yeah. CEO of PFP Capital. How have you been finding it so far? Um, really good so far. We're a, a great small team um, that sits within and connected to a much bigger team behind it. Um, and the small team is basically focused on fund management for the living sector. But the group behind is, is the interesting part as well. And I think, you know, it's a unique structure that we've got, unique in a couple of ways. So whether um, well, PFP, Places for People, is the only housing association registered provider to have an FCA-regulated fund management group, which is what we are. Um, others have done partnerships with institutional capital, but we're doing it on a fund management basis to bring institutional capital in. We also have ESG embedded, which is not unique. You know, lots of people do, but five years ago, the team set up the structure and embedded it from day one. Um, it was much more rare back probably in 2017, right, than it is now, where it's the word of the day. Um, but it was integrated then, and actually it's in our DNA to be... Um, to have ESG there, like the fact that all of our profits go back to a registered provider to provide more social housing fundamentally makes us, you know, um, high up on the, in terms of that social agenda. And then I think, you know, the other part then generally is, is like how, how we go about things. Um, we have um, three funds up and running. Um, some of those have taken portfolios from the group, and then the group does its own development. But mainly it's done in the open market. But we have the ability to take assets from the group and from the open market and, and grow things that way, um, which, again, I think is just another unique way that, of us being vertically integrated. Um, I'll come on to talk about Igloo developments later. You might have seen that we bought those earlier on this year, and that's another facet for that. So all the way through from development right the way through to the asset management and property management is done in-house. And I think those three factors, along with the fact that we're in the living sector, which... You know, the stars are aligning really for that in terms of people looking to come into residential. Um, I think it's just made it an ultimately incredible opportunity that, that we've got. Yeah. Oh, there's so many points there that you've just drawn, <laughs> drawn uh, our attention to that I'd love to, I'd love to come back to. But I guess um, just first off, I mean, 
you know, we've, we've mentioned your career working in senior roles with a host of major investment and finance players. And I, I imagine PFP might be quite different to some of those firms on, on various levels. And I just wonder what the draw was for you and how the opportunity came about in joining PFP Capital. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So my background is very much in terms of investment and I've done fund management for Core Plus, so for teachers, TIA, CREF. Uh, I've worked for Lone Star, so right up to the opportunistic and done everything in between in terms of value add across all sectors, so not just residential, although Quintain was where I spent the last seven years really sort of getting to learn about this. Um, but the interesting part about it is, is that the housing sector needs institutional investment. And what I've been doing is investment and looking at it from all angles um, and how to think about how we bring money into the sector. The sector needs money. Um, the government has a certain amount of grants that it can get. The housing associations have some money, but a lot of it is being spent on things like damp and mould. Unfortunately, you know, the fire safety, which absolutely needs to be done, and their ESG. So the amount of money they've got is, is minimal. Um, and then the volume house builders are out there, but have to date really only been catering for uh, individual buyers and, and, and not out in terms of you know, helping to grow the sector for institutional investment. And so I come at it from a point of view that I've spent most of my life on capital markets of some description and um, ashamedly making a profit. And if we make a profit for a group that then goes back to create more social value, as I said before, it's like, how, how can that not be the, the best thing? So um, unashamedly capitalist, but for good reasons. That's a great description. Um, I mean, I guess that the capital division has a, a fascinating framework that you you uh, you mentioned a bit earlier. You know, uh, making profits to sort of feed back to the social enterprise. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it may be uh, the only organisation of its type in terms of operating as a fund manager as a subsidiary for for a social enterprise. I mean, what's the upsides of having this kind of structure, and, and what are the drawbacks? So you're absolutely right. We're the only one that's done it. And as I say, others have done partnerships. So Hyde has done partnerships um, and M&G's out there, AXA's out there and, and others. But we're the only person that's got it on an FCA regulated basis, which means that we can bring in smaller investors into the market. I think the, the other thing just really to think about and, and maybe I think thinking about when you've got a housing association as your, your group company, lots of people think that you have a social housing mindset. Um, places where people manage or own and or own 230,000 homes, of which 75,000 are affordable. So we have a foot in both camps. We understand it's in our DNA to do social housing, but it's also in our DNA to do market value. Um, and and that, that, I think, is sort of the key for what we want to do on the fund management basis is is that whole thing about you can bring institutions in. They don't have to be the, you know, just the big guys like the M&Gs and the Xs. You can bring smaller people into the market. And I think there's a fascinating opportunity to try and bring that agglomeration of capital in to work on both the social and the market value. Yeah, so interesting. And I mean, I guess in this sort of tricky time for, for the economy, how do you go about balancing minimizing risk with maximizing impact, if that makes sense? <laughs> Yeah, it does make sense. So um, well, I think we come back to the residential fundamentals as well. You know, we have a massive undersupply of housing and that's why the sector is just has always, well, not always been, but like has really been very interesting. So, you know, the, the demand for housing is always there. Um, if you build the right stuff at the right price, you will find that there are people to own it, which is the conundrum that we've got really with the house builders 
you know, they provide, I think the house builders and private developers provide about 78% of the new builds coming into the market. And we all know they are, the amount of housing coming out hasn't been as much as it should have been or the government targets. And, and so we have to think very carefully about how that money comes in and um, what we can do in terms of making sure that we're attracting people to, to develop. Um, and, and that development needs to be, at, as I said it before, at the right price. And once you've got that right and you've got all of the communities that you're building right, which comes back into the social value point, really, about building communities and, and making sure that the people... I know it feels like it's going <laughs> to fall down, doesn't it? Um, making sure that the people are living there, you know, are, are, um, are in a great place and, and, you know, and happy with their communities that's been built, then, then the risk is, is managed. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've got 230,000 users, as I say, and the void is, is de minimis. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I guess it, it sort of... It ties in your what you've just said sort of ties in with my next question really, which is, uh, is there a way that the real estate industry can better show that stable and compelling returns can be generated because of social value and not just as well as social value? Um, yeah, I think the Im the problem that we always have is when we talk about social value and impact is that people equate those words to a discount on returns, and actually what it is is that it's additive. And, and it, you know, we get financial returns, and then on top of that, you can get social returns. And the confusing part is the sort of impact, and it's not philanthropy, and it's not, and it's not taking you know, de minimis sort of charitable type return. Um, so is there a way that we can show that? I mean, we, we, we do that, that's what we're doing. Um, you know, we've got blue chip investors that are in the three funds that we're running at the moment, and, and the returns are very strong, and they're very happy, and, um, and on top of that, we provide the social value, as we say, and the social impact um, of creating the communities. How do you show it? Well, I mean, the measurement of social value has had a lot of discussion about it. Um, it is a very difficult area um, to deal with, not only because you've got completely different assets and sectors that you're dealing with, so how do you get a standardized metric? But not only that, it's sort of how do you deal with it through the sort of the life cycle, really, if you call it that, of a property from, you know, the planners to the developers to the long-term owners, it, it means very different things to different people. Um, but I'm going to come back to one of the, you know, I mentioned earlier that we bought Igloo Regeneration earlier, and actually they have this really interesting model that when they start, before they go into planning, they start thinking about the social value so that they have that thread going all the way through. Mm. Um, and... Um, that then means that once they've got that social value in place, that wh whatever it is that they've done that's pertaining to that development then has a much better chance uh, and a very strong impact within its community because they've gone and talked to the community before they did the planning. Um, having the thread all the way through as well and being vertically integrated also means that what you started with and the vision you started with is what, hopefully, unless you change your mind halfway through, is what you're going to end up with when you're long-term managing it. And it's much easier to show the social value when you're a long-term owner than it is when you're a, I was gonna say bit player, I don't mean that nastily. I mean, if you're only part of the process, the social value part is gonna be much more difficult to show and more difficult to evidence than it is if you're a long-term player. Yeah, I mean, that is, um, I feel like we, we may only just sort of scratch the surface of, of the topic, but I mean, it's, it's a really interesting um, issue that you raise in terms of the minefield of measuring uh, social value. I mean, the world of finance has always 
ascribed to the language of pound signs, really, hasn't it? But imagine that some of it just isn't measurable. So, I mean, how are you... How, can you go into a bit more detail on how you're tackling that issue or how what you think is the best way to approach that, that kind of uh, issue? Yeah, and I get the pound signs because I've sort of got a more of a capital financial background and we're obsessed by that, aren't we, that we can show it, but you can't show it for a number of things. Um, what you can show are case studies and impact investments, um, you know, that, that sort of say this is what we've done and this is the effect and this is what the people are saying. And, and I think then, it, you know, a lot of this isn't thinking globally or, you know, or, or thinking, you know, huge at a macro. You're thinking micro and what's happening to the people that are there. The whole point about social impact and social value is that you're improving, you know, the people's lives who are living there and the benefit is to them. Um, so I think it does come down to the fact that you can have, and there are, you know, there are lots of people out there who have put strategies in place uh, and shown how they'll show social value. Um, so Igloo again helped the UK Green Building Council put together their framework, and they did it as a framework to think about how social value is measured just because of the fact that everyone can think about it more differently. Um, and I think that's probably the, the, way, the way to go and see if you can measure it. But you can look at things like, you know, um, your supply chain, are you using local suppliers? Um, when you are a developer, are you using local employment? Um, are you bringing in local apprentices? Have you got a local community that you know is benefiting from from what you're doing? There is a way of doing it. Making it standardised, I think, is the issue. Um, but I think as long as people are, are, are clear about how they're doing it, you should be able to sort of show it and hopefully avoid whatever the equivalent of greenwashing is for social impact. <laughs> social washing. Social. Yeah, it's about Doesn't to sound <laughs> right, does it? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it does, um, on a sort of re related note, it does feel like the residential market in particular is moving all the time uh, in, in relation to not only the S, but also the E and the G aspects of, of ESG. Um, and how, how are you ensuring that PFP capital keeps up with the pace of change? Mm, good question. So as I said at the outset, you know, it was embedded when we, well, I say we, it wasn't me, the guys here set it up five years ago. Um, We've looked at things again, and in fact, we've got Hillbreak working with us now to make sure we stay at the vanguard of what we're doing because things move and things change. Um, and, and we're looking at how we do that um, across our company and across the funds that we're running. It's quite nuanced for the funds that we're running. We have very different models for some of them. So um, one of them being full regeneration, it's much easier for us to be in control of things. But we have a um, single-family housing fund with USS, and most of that is bought from private developers and house builders, and it's existing stock or near existing stock when we buy. So the ability to influence is, is much, it's much less, really, because, because of the stage that we're coming in. So we're reduced down to things like thinking about um, the energy provision, thinking about what we can do for the community at that point. Um, so, and I've forgotten the question. I'm sorry, I've gone <laughs> off on mine again. Oh, no, it's just how, you know, how you're ensuring that the that we can keep it, it with, with the pace of change. Yeah, yeah no, I think that's it. And I think basically what, what we will do is um, we will just keep coming back to making sure that, that what we're doing is appropriate. And, you know, there's that phrase, isn't it? Do what you do well. And, and you know, when you realise that it, it can be better, well, then do better. And that's, that's what we're assigning ourselves to. So that project is ongoing and, and we'll be coming out with that later this year. Great. Um, and I guess how, on a sort of wider note, I mean, how can the industry work together to ensure that new homes are being delivered? And more importantly, you know, in a way that actually makes the world a better place. Hmm. I'll tackle the first one first. The <laughs> second half sensitive we've got. Um, so I think the, 
I mean, we talked about well, volume house builders before and the, just the amount of uh, impact them turning their tap off can have on, on the delivery, right? And, and fundamentally, they have... And I'm, this is a gross overgeneralization, right? So forgive me for that. But they're selling to individuals. Um, and when the individuals are buying less because mortgage rates have gone up or help to buy is going to finish next month, um, you know, potentially their profits are impacted, so they'll turn the tap off and, and build less. Um, as I say, it's an overgeneralization. There is an approach that you can take, which is mixed tenure. And, you know, when you are buying in bulk for rental, which we do, we do buy at a discount. And that discount can therefore be unattractive to house builders if they have already developed and put it through their process and, you know, have their sales and marketing running. If you start the process earlier um, and you fundamentally say to the house builders, well, how about, say, for example, you've got a third affordable because that's what your planning says, you do a third rental and a third for sale... The third rental, you don't have to have your sales and marketing team, and you will get all of the money up front. Uh, right when you, well, you could have it forward funded, so um, as, as upfront as that will provide you. Um, and then you will have a community already there. So when you go to then sell, they're not pioneering. The people coming in on an individual basis are coming in and finding a community that's already up and thriving because the rental community is there, and the affordable probably. Um, but you have to start that at the outset. And, and what doesn't work necessarily, or you know, there are portfolios that we're buying at the moment from house builders, but what doesn't work is if it's gone through the process and then they have to take more of a discount than they actually want to. So um, that's what we're trying to do, and we're talking to house builders about doing partnerships to make sure you can bring that, bring that development forward because they know that there's a takeout. Um, and that also happens with our own groups as well. You know, they are, they're absolutely taking the mixed tenure approach. And it's a nice approach for a community to live in as well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and we are, of course, having this discussion a day before the Chancellor is due to present his spring budget. <laughs> and it's a bit of a sweeping question, but what, what would you hope to see come out of it? You know, what's, what's on the wish list? I mean, that, that is, of course, assuming that everyone holds on to their roles long enough to get, get the job done. <laughs> um, gosh, politics. Um, I, think, I think, you know, there are a few things that you can do to help stimulate the market. And there's lots of things been tried. I mean, you know, we've talked about, well, mentioned help to buy already, and that's gone. I think that's going to have a massive effect. And, I, and, and I'd like to see them come up with something else. I'd love it to be helped to rent, but I'm not sure how that would work. Um, we do have a fixation with home ownership, which I get. I own my own home. But, you know, is there a way to encourage other, other ways and other tenures to come out? Um, there are also just, you know, other things that we look at that you just think there are ways that you can stimulate the market as well. Um, one of them is definitely VAT that, that we get on our on our assets and, and, you know, is that a way that they could easily help stimulate the market just by sort of giving us a window for that? I don't know. I think it's, it's such a huge area the bit that we're always in the housing industry, in the residential industry, upset with is the fact that it's well known that we've, we get a housing minister every 3.5 seconds. So, you know, at the fact that we don't have any long-term person thinking about stimulation for the housing other than Homes England... Um, but within the government is is actually what I'd prefer rather than Jeremy Hunt, and I don't think he's going to come to us. I think he's going to go to personal tax, isn't he? Right, I see. 
But at least, uh, I mean, uh, what about the sort of the, the leveling up agenda ah. and the <laughs> ah. <laughs> being the... Well, <laughs> I was listening to some of the people talk this morning. I don't know if anyone else was and from the UK city stuff. And they were basically saying leveling up... Well, I'm going to paraphrase. I hope I get it right. But the leveling up agenda was, um, you know, it's just a word. It's a way of for them to describe what they've always been doing. Uh, and it's great that the UK government is stimulating that, that, that money and that investment. Um, but they've always been doing it and they're always trying to attract capital in. The key to that, I think, is attract capital in. And the UK government can do what it does, but it needs the institutional capital to come with it too. And without that, in my mind, you're not going to get the scale of investment that you need in the regions. Mm. Um, we think the regions of the UK are, are, are a great place to invest. Um, you know, we're going more localised now, right? Less globalised. Um, where's the land? Where's the labour? Where's the ability to to basically build up the UK economy? It's it's in the regions, and that's that's really why we're focusing on it to make sure that you've got affordable housing, capital A and lowercase a in all of those regions. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess tying in with your comments on on drawing in capital, I mean, it, it'd be good to kind of get your take at the moment on how resi real estate is holding up in, in at the moment in the context of the wider market, you know, compared with other asset classes and, and what sort of capital is it drawing in currently? So um, it is holding up. It's had a slight correction. The UK had a big correction at the end of last year. 15% um, correction than Q4, I think. Residential was much, much, much smaller than that. Now, does that mean that it's yet to come? I don't, I don't think so. We don't know. But actually, we were looking at a graph of where um, cap rates have been based on guilt rates or, or in comparison to guilt rates and um, interest rates just generally. And, and it's a very small band that it moves in. Um, and then you look at commercial cap rates and how they move, and they're doing the swings and they're following it. There's a greater correlation. Residential tends to be a bit more of a steady eddy in that, um, you know, and I think maybe that's just, okay, we're a low yield, we can't go any lower, and, and once it slightly gets any higher, then, then there's always the demand to take it. I do think it's because of the huge amount of demand and the undersupply that's there. Um, but the returns are, um, are strong, they're inflation correlated. Um, you get a reset of your rent every 12 months versus having to wait and hope that your five-yearly rent review goes at the right time in the market um, and not the wrong time. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the investment profile is a very interesting one to a ton of investors. A lot of people out there who have, you know, got the liability-driven um, investment profile love the, you know, love the cash flow profile, basically. So we're talking to a lot of local government pension um, schemes. Um, we talk to a lot of um, investors, sort of life insurance, that side of things. Um, and, and all of them. In fact, a lot of people are just very interested in this, just simply, I think, because of the diversification away from commercial as well. That's very interesting. Um, and on a more personal note, perhaps, let, let's say 10 years from now, you're reflecting on your time at the helm at uh, PFP Capital. What would you most like to be remembered for doing? You know, what would, your, what would you like your legacy to mean for PFP Capital and, and beyond the organization? So I think I'll come back to the sort of bringing the institutional capital in and having a foot both in the social and the market and, and, and value side of the residential. Um, so we, you know, I keep saying we're unique in how we're structured and, and how we think and what we want to do. We want to grow, but we don't want to grow and be volume for the sake of volume. But 
you know, we're having some really interesting conversations with other housing associations who are all trying to work out alternate funding options. And, and what I'd really like us to, to end up being is, um, is somewhere that you can pick strategies across the range from student to build to rent to um, later living, and it can be affordable or it could be market value, and it can be um, assets that we've bought in the open market, we've bought from Places for People group or other housing associations, and that people have that complete smorgasbord as to what they can do. And you know, if we can do it so that we are also the fund management group, not just for Places for People, but the fund management group for the social housing sector as well, that would be superb. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. That's given us a lot to, to think about and to get our teeth into. I mean, I feel like this chat could actually go on for, for so much longer, but I fear I've been hogging your time. So I will turn to the floor now for any burning questions our audience might have. Well, two questions, um, priority questions for me would be scalable. How scalable are your, do you think this could get? I'm not, I'm not sure how big your, your current funds are. And, and also, you, you haven't said what... what returns you're targeting for your investors? So um, we have three funds at the moment. Um, we have our um, PRS fund, which is single family housing with um, USS, which is about 330 million. Um, we have uh, a social housing fund up in Scotland, um, which is now 200 million, as we've just received uh, an upscale from one of the investors. Um, and we have a regeneration fund, which is where we will be announcing shortly our first investor in that. Um, but we've got probably about 100 million coming into that one. Um, so all in all, we're around the 600 million mark at the moment. Um, we're looking to grow that and have our plans and business plans to grow that and working with the investors to grow not only those funds, but to do extra ones. So how scalable? Um, ultimately, you know, the group is managing 230,000 homes, as I mentioned. You know, we're a drop in the ocean in terms of that. We're, you know, 3,000 at the moment as, or, or more. Um, we can scale this up, and it's more about uh, actually some of that portfolio we could look to take from the fund and bring institutional capital into, but they are managing it on our behalf. Um, that doesn't pose a question or a problem for scalability because they have the management capability to do it. And as far as I'm concerned, the institutional capital is there as well in, in bulk. And actually, they prefer to be in on a greater basis than a smaller basis. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. And the returns? Ah, returns. Um, so at the moment, the, what we have are uh, mainly ungeared um, portfolios at least for the single-family housing, um, that's getting a high single-digit IRR. Um, a lot of it is from cash income, which is, again, the good thing about residential investment is that you get a lot of your returns from cash. You're not relying on your capital value growth, therefore. Um, the uh, regeneration fund that we have is um, more value-add, um, and the social housing one actually is, yeah, it's uh, mid-single-digit cash returns, and in fact, it will be a higher IRR once most of those developments have come in. We will be adding more of a range. I want us to have a range of sort of core, core plus and value add just to make sure that we've got, as I say, that sort of smorgasbord of things that people can pick from. The, the value add piece, which is your sort of vertical sort of integration of everything, what do you think is a realistic value add return for residential in, in this social sector? Um, so the, the development that we're doing is uh, mixed tenure. So it's got social and it'll have rental and it'll have for sale. Um, and the value add returns are mid-teens, so, but they're geared as well, yeah. just to be clear. Um, 
you won't be able to get value add returns on social just simply because of the of the rental but you've got the security and you've got a much lower risk so you don't need those returns great um i am afraid that's all the time we have for questions but thank you very much and please join me in thanking catherine for her very insightful and inspiring views <laughs>